Welcome back. It's another episode of PCL OTR, the Lord of the Rings, the Rings of Power podcast. And my name is Brian. I am from Pop Culture Leftovers. I am one of your hosts. I'm also joined by Jake from Pop Culture, Lef- Pop Culture Leftovers. Welcome, Jake. I can't even say the name of our own podcast. Thank you, Brian. Yeah, excited to talk about this one. Oh, right. Me too. Uh, and we also are joined by Mr. Joe Stark from Starkcast Podcast. Welcome, Joe. Hey, stoked to be here. And Billy Blinks from The Reality Guys on YouTube. Welcome, Billy. Thank you, Brian. Excited. This is another awesome one, a ton to dive into. Uh, it is episode five. Partings is the title. Partings. And uh, wow, guys, I'm telling you, upon first watch, I'm telling you, every time we watch one of these episodes, uh, I don't know what it is. It's like for the casual viewer just watching these as they come out. But for like someone who's recapping these episodes, that first watch is always intimidating to me to kind of like break this down. Are we going to do the episode justice? Are we going to do our listeners justice? And um, I, I hope that I hope that we can bring you guys the best episode we can this week because uh, I was I think. I think it's like this with all the episodes for me. I don't know what it, what it's like, what the process is like for you guys. I don't know. Are you exper- experiencing kind of like the like a similar thing when you first watch these episodes? Because I do. I think it's a, just a different experience as someone who's recapping these shows as opposed to someone who's just watching this casually week to week. Oh, a hundred percent. Like when you're just casually watching, you, you don't think about how thick the episode is with diff- different story points and plot. And this episode was very thick on first viewing. Well, I for me, it's like not I, I feel like I, we we have to do our part for the listener, like to explain what's going on here. What how how am I going to break this down and bring something more to our listener that that the episode didn't kind of reveal to them? That's what I'm always kind of looking at these episodes like. Yeah, it's interesting, Brian, because I, I kind of my process is more the first viewing is where I do a lot of my stopping, a lot of my note taking. I kind of subconsciously just go into that mode for the first view and then go, wow, look at how many notes are there. And then you go into the repeat viewings. And I think you guys can agree with this, too, is that when once you have started to do the repeat viewings, this show is doing a great job of packing a lot of lore in there. In, you know, there's some stuff that they're putting right in your face and telling you that you need to know. And they're also layering things in there that if you want to do the research and you want to learn more, there's a lot more right there under the surface to see, which I think has been a really cool balance. Yeah, I think the rewatchability on this show, especially, uh, you know, from people that I've talked to that actually listen to our podcast and probably other podcasts as well. I'm not just saying we're the we're not the only Lord of the Rings, the Rings of Power podcast. If you're listening to other ones, I'm sure that, you know, when you listen to a podcast and you hear something that they kind of mention or bring up, it it would help with your rewatchability factor. I really think that this is a smart show like that. And I've noticed shows that I have done recaps for in the past that it's always a little bit more interesting upon the second viewing or after listening to someone else's opinion or opinions or thoughts about the episode. So I hope that we're bringing something to our listeners as we kind of break these episodes down because it is sometimes it's daunting, but I'm telling you, I think it's definitely worth the, you know, the juice is worth the squeeze, I believe. So when it comes to this. Oh, absolutely. And, and the, you know, the source text for this is just so rich and so dense with thousands and thousands of years of very detailed history. And, 
they they do they do do a very good job of embedding a lot of that in there, whether it's actually in the dialogue or hidden in things in the background. Um, this show is one of those ones where I think that the more you do listen to to other breakdown episodes and and you know maybe even dive into the lore yourself if 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 you're brave <laughs> to dip a toe into those waters, it, it can reap lots of benefits because there is lots of little stuff hidden in there. Yeah, I'm, I don't even know if we've caught everything. It might be one of those things where we'll go back, you know, after the whole season's completed and be like, wow, we completely missed that. But, you know, it's just, it's been a lot of fun. I, I, I it, it's been, so at times it, it is very stressful, but man, overall, I think this is kind of like enhancing and not detracting my experience of watching this show. Um, <laughs> the last few episodes, I have been 100% convinced that Halbrand is Sauron. Do you guys think that my opinion has changed since this episode? I'm just curious. No I, way. <laughs> I'm curious if it shook you a little bit. Because this one, it felt like, to me, it might have have been pushing in an opposite direction of, of the Halbrand is Sauron. But, I mean, shit, dude, you never know. I I kind of lean your way too, Joe. And again, I, I would, I've been of the opinion that I'm not anti being Halbrand, but I really feel like they're making us like this guy so much and putting him and setting him up to kind of go on this tragic hero's journey that I'm leaning towards him still ended up being some kind of evil figure, whether we talk Witch King or a Nazgul, whatever. But yeah, I'm, I'm having a hard time, which will make it really a, a, a satisfying thing, even if he ends up being him. But curious, Bri, where if you've your thing has grown or where it stands. Tell you what, let's I'm not going to discuss that now. I'll let you know later if I'm waffling on this uh, when we get into that storyline. But right now I'm going to hold on to that card and we'll and we'll uh, start breaking it down before I get to, you know, where I'm at with the whole Halbrand is Sauron. I, I guys, I think Halbrand is Snoke. I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> <laughs> There's a bunch of Halbrands in jars somewhere. Yeah, not a clone, not a clone. I just, I, I tell you, I will get there. I'm kidding. I nothing to do with Star Wars, guys. Uh, I did find it interesting, and I'm hoping not to forget. And if I do forget, please remind me. But we did find out, like we talked about this in the bonus second breakfast episode. Uh, I was curious as to like why they had to have the forge needed uh to be erected and fully functioning by spring and it is addressed in this episode so we are going to be talking about that so that's one thing that i think we can kind of cross off our list here is like why did the forge need to be made by spring and we'll talk about that later uh we did i did see in uh the news today and i read this off of dark horizons title of the article was rings of power season two sets a filming start Amazon Prime's The Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power series is still in the midst of airing its first season, and the wheels of production must continue. Long-running fan site TheOneRing.net reports that filming on the next season of the mega-budget series commences on October 7th. In addition, the new season shift to the UK is confirmed. That is confirmed. That was some. Uh, there were some earlier reports that they were not going to be filming anymore in New Zealand. And uh, now they're saying filming is slated to take place around Edinburgh, Scotland and surrounding locations while Bray Studios near Windsor Castle will serve as the show's home base in the UK. Production will also return to the first season's home in Auckland, New Zealand. Um, oh, OK. 
I, 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 hmm. I didn't see that. So not predominantly yeah. in New Zealand, but they will feature it for some things. And that makes sense. That's I good. Think. That's good news. That's very good news in my opinion. Uh, I was worried about that because I think like, you know, some of the most beautiful shots are what they have been feeling, uh, filming in New Zealand. And I was really worried about the second season kind of taking a dip as far as like the quality. So that's good. Yeah, news. just feeling so open, and yeah, those those panoramic shots. Oh my gosh! Like I was a little bit worried about them not filming in New Zealand for those exact same reasons. It's just been so refreshing to me to watch a series that is doing kind of like this on set location filming. I, for as much as I think like, you know, the Star Wars technology that they use in the Mandalorian, the volume serves a purpose. I can also see at times where it is limiting and it's, I don't know, it's just much more impressive when everything just feels so real and tactile when you're watching a, a movie like Mission Impossible where they're doing all this onset, you know, location and, and, and same thing with, uh, you know, Top Gun Maverick and, and, uh, you know, even the Andor series from Star Wars just looks and feels so much different than, what we're getting with some of the other things. What were you going to say, Billy? No, I, I agree with all of you guys. To me, New Zealand is just as much of a character in all of the visual medium of Middle Earth that we're all accustomed to. Like you said, I nothing not against anything in England or Scotland or anything like that, but it'll start to look like other shows then. It'll start to look like Game of Thrones. It'll start to look like a lot of these other kind of The Witcher and other fantasy series that we do see filmed in similar locations. And it, like it's like you said, it's just the openness of New Zealand. It's the varying landscapes within one sh- panoramic shot that you can get that you cannot get anywhere else on the planet. And like you said, the problem with that volume is for as wonderful as the technology itself is as an achievement, you can tell when they're using it and when they're not. And to me, that takes you out of it a little bit. If you're looking for it, you cannot be taken out of this show by pausing and looking in for some kind of detail or weird thing. You just, it's just can't be done. It's too immersive. I agree. So yeah, they're going to be uh, filming season two in just a few short weeks. October 7th is when they're going to start. And so that is great news. The sooner, the better looking forward to season two. Um, I actually read uh, time magazine had an article about, uh, I guess one of the showrunners kind of revealed a, a character that is going to be in season two. Did you guys, did you guys see that article? Oh, I did not. No. Do you want me to pull it up I, real quick while I'm thinking about yeah, I'd, it? I'd, yeah. I'd love to see it. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah, I guess, I don't know. I guess I'll put a light spoiler warning on this. This is something that's already out there. I actually got this from winteriscoming.net on a story that they ran, but uh, it came from uh, a Time Magazine article and it says uh, it's uh, the Rings of Power showrunner J.D. Payne was more forthcoming when talking to Time about an important figure from Tolkien's mythology who will show up in the second season whenever that comes along. Quote, we don't want to give away too much, but one character we're excited for folks to meet in season two is, and I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly, is Serdan the Shipwright. Oh, the- sweet. Oh, sick. In the time of our story, he's the oldest of all the known elves in Middle-earth. In fact, he lived so long, he had a beard. So that is one character. 
that we can look forward to. The article goes on to say, Serdan is an important figure in Tolkien's legendarium and not one who's been much explored. He was around in the earliest days, not long after the elves first awoke. He decided to stay in Middle-earth rather than cross the sea to Valinor and is there to greet Gandalf when he arrives in Middle-earth during the Third Age. He plays a big role in the Second Age, so it makes sense that we'd see him. So, yeah, a um, little bit of a season two tease there from the showrunner J.D. Payne. So that's very cool. What can, what can you guys tell me about this character? Maybe that uh, they didn't explain in the article. That's really interesting. And, and Joe, I know you've done the research, too. But so Sirdan would be it's a very important character. Like you said, Brian, not explored a ton in the kind of main text, but within the um, unfinished tales and things of that nature, there is some history there. Um, I guess a, a minor spoiler alert here, but he ends up getting the ring of power that Gilgalad has after his death. And after Gilgalad dies, Sirdon has that ring. And in the lore, in the Third Age, when Gandalf arrives, Sirdon is the one who gives Gandalf his ring of power that Gandalf has. It's a, a, a Narya. Yeah. Really cool character. Very cool. Yeah, man. So He's the, he's the master of the Grey Havens also. So where all the ships go in and out of, you know, in the, the Peter Jackson films – that's kind of his realm. Okay. All right. Very good. Uh, yeah. See, that's what I love about this show. We're going to be able to explore some of these lesser known characters and kind of flesh them out. I think it's totally acceptable. I think, I think it's definitely enhancing, enhancing these books and enhancing the lore. I think this, that's why, that's why this, sh the Tolkien world is ripe for this shit. So. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I I'm mean, there, sorry. There I'm is... honestly sitting here. My brain is turning now because it, it makes me think, you know, if they are going to change and accelerate things, does that give credence to the Gandalf as the stranger? Because they could be establishing that. <clears throat> and maybe they time jump it or something at the end in like season five. I, I don't know. But that just has me thinking like the connective dots are, are, are being lined up there a little bit. I feel, and Billy, I understand I was, I was in the same camp. I feel like when we first started this, we were all like, well, you know, we're not going to see a lot of these things until, you know, seasons, maybe, you know, three, four, possibly five. And this show is moving. This show is like a freight train. <laughs> chugga, chugga, choo, choo, dude. It is moving. <laughs> and so I think, I think we've kind of like had to, readjust like you know um you know our expected timeline for the way the show is going to move after you know what we've seen in this first season i don't know i agree let's break down this episode uh let's start we're going to start off with the uh harfoot storyline here and uh at the beginning of the episode we've got the we've got the stranger and he's he's I was like what is he saying he's trying to say migration <laughs> and um and so Nori you know is like migration migration he's he's learning and she says that they're going to they're on their way to the grove and they're going to there's lots of fruit and different foods that they can get in the grove and then Nori starts to talk about all the perils along the way you know trolls orcs and wolves and and things like that i think she even mentions maybe pirates but um no i think she was, i thought she was saying pirates but she was saying perils <laughs> perils perils 
uh, and then the stranger thinks that since you know he almost caught the camp on fire that he himself is a peril and then nori being who she is she's like no 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 you're here to help you are good you are not a peril you are here to help and and um he starts to say you know good like and then we uh start to see the caravan start to move again and poppy starts to sing a song billy you had that song stuck in your head all day you said that in the facebook chat all day i had i mean all week really like oh my it please it's just it's so and it's so pure and again it that was it reminded me of a jackson song it reminded me of the hobbits it was it reminded me it. of the of the Hobbit animated cartoon that I grew up on as a kid. Oh my yeah, god, me yeah, as well. Totally. Oh, totally. That's oh a wow. Point. I didn't think of that until you just said that, but you were definitely right. It was. I, I know we're going to dive into it more, but that scene with the song and the montage, I think, was my favorite scene of the entire episode. Well, listen, like it's one of those songs where she starts to sing it. I'm like, I was like, I know this is a new song. But I feel like I've heard it before. Like, this just exists in the world, if that makes any sense. Like, it feels like a song that's always been there, but I'm hearing it for the first time, if that makes any sense. Oh, my God. So much sense. Exactly. It made me think, like, oh, is there – this is probably a Tolkien song. Like, it's probably in one of the books. And like you said, it's an original song, but it just – Sounds like it's been being played in pubs for hundreds of years. <laughs> it's definitely using some of his words because not all who wander are lost. That's that's a Tolkien line. Yeah, yeah, that's famous Gandalf dialogue from the book, right? Isn't that spoken yes. in the same line where he talks about all that is gold does not glitter? Yeah, yeah not, not all, all who wander are lost. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I had I had had that song somewhat spoiled for me because I've been listening to the 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 album <laughs> and so it popped up on there and i was like oh for sure this is going to be a Harfoot song and so right when poppy started singing i was like oh, all right here we go yeah and the amazon prime social media has been using that song in the preview for this episode as well oh excellent i hope that that is on the two se- the, the 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 vinyl set that's coming out and uh i actually it, w- it will be I pre-ordered the vinyl set on Mondoshop.com. So if people are wanting to add to their vinyl collection, if that's something that they're into, uh, you can go to Mondoshop.com and uh, add the Lord of the Rings, the Rings of Power soundtrack, all the Bear McCreary stuff, and then this Poppy song. So I definitely got my hands on one of those. I pre-ordered it, and I would recommend doing that soon because it'll probably sell out. And Dude, that's fantastic. I, I've been so obsessed with the music in this show. And, and I've said it in prior episodes going into this. That was one of the things that I was most worried about is because I love the music in the Peter Jackson films. Mm-hmm. I might like the music in this more because um, over the last like four days, I mainlined the entire trilogy's extended edition. And yeah, I've had some Lord of the Rings songs stuck or music in my head, but I keep going back to like the Khazad Doom theme or the Galadriel theme in this or or the Sauron theme. Like I fucking love them. Oh, and I even found a a a, a metal inspired one of Khazad Doom on YouTube, which was just fucking tremendous. Yeah, you shared that with us, and it was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I love it when these metal guitarists get a hold of these uh, uh, themes and and do their own renditions of them. And I had Khazad Doom stuck in my head, and I'm like, dude, this is just perfect 
for a metal rendition, and sure enough, there's one out there. What's more metal than fucking Lord of the Rings, man? Oh, no shit. Not much. <laughs> Not much okay, so we get, like, you know, some Poppy singing her song. It's beautiful. We get shots of, uh, like, these Tolkien-inspired maps. We get shots of the Harfoots traveling. And, and, and then we get this overhead shot of the burning crater where the stranger arrived and we see it the way it was and i think that it was smart for them to show it to us with him arriving and then we flash forward to it not on fire but you know the fire's gone it's cooled and now we see four new mysterious strangers all dressed in white looking at the crater there are I don't know if you guys noticed this, but there were three on one rock formation. There were two female, one male. One is wearing a helmet. There's the other one holding what looks to be a shield or, or a bowl. Another holding uh, a staff, a hooded one holding a staff. Then it's, it's immediate, they immediately cut to the hooded male stranger standing on another rock formation so how did he move to that other lower rock formation so quickly did you guys notice that yeah yeah no i i totally thought i like i wrote in my notes like magic question mark yeah and i i think it was just three of them though right no 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 no. there was also the one down below unless he but moved when he's again down below, it's only showing two up on top of the cliff Okay, unless so that's him. He moved below. Yeah, exactly, because it's like one moment, all three of them are up there, and then the one in the helm turns to look at at the other one that that has a, a a different style of head covering. And as she looks over, all of a sudden, that one in the middle with the staff isn't there anymore, and he's down on the ground. Okay, so I guess it's three. The, that I slim, w- shady looking one. Yeah, slim, shady one. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I kept calling him in my notes. Yeah, Eminem. <laughs> so I was thinking that there were four and I thought he was looking back at the other one that was on the rock, but they were, they were I'm pretty sure it's just the three. I think is, you're right. What I'm staking it on. I think you're right. Because like the kind of like the, the decorative vest that that character was wearing, the other one was wearing. So it's probably the same one. It's just that there's such new characters. I couldn't. Exactly. Yeah. And I went through it. Like, like I hit pause and then just, the right arrow button over and over to just go forward like an increment at a time. Yeah. And because they're the armor between the two that stay up on the cliff are subtly different. Uh, the one that's wearing a helm is wearing like a chain mail type thing that it has a portion on it also that has writing in it that looks like it's elvish. And then the other one's wearing more of like a breastplate. Um, they're both definitely wearing armor, which is curious. The one that's wearing the helm, the ears are exposed and they're rounded um, the, the thing that I thought was the coolest though is that one that's holding that plate looking thing when it shows the view showing kind of up behind them and it's showing the, the, the hooded one down on the ground by the crater, you can see that star constellation that the stranger had been drawing out in the ground. It's marked out on the back of that plate. I was wondering what that was. That's the, okay. Wow. So they're definitely connected to, 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 they're connected to the stranger somehow. I mean, and obviously because they were drawn to the crash site. They're investigating it, but they're holding whatever that, I don't know what that plate is, but whatever it is, it has that same 
constellation figure on it drawn out that the stranger was doing. With you saying that that one is is definitely the same that we saw on – it's I, I would bet on it. It's, okay. Uh, it's totally three and that's the same one yeah. and somehow – Either it's just clever editing, you know, we've seen this show do that, where it's all of a sudden in the blink of an eye, it's just a massive little time jump, but um, I don't think that's what this was. I think it was showing that somehow this thing used fucking magic to get down there fast. Billy, uh, you're, are you watching it currently? Can you can you confirm that the the one that had the hood on, I, I couldn't make out if, if if that one had the same hair as the one that was actually in the crater? Yeah, it's this. There are three totals. So okay, like Joe and said, the, the plate the, one, the soldier-looking one, and then the one with the staff. That I think the top of the staff looks like the eye of Sauron, which is. That means that all all three are females. These are all female actors playing this these roles. Yeah, I definitely thought the one with the 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 hood. I was like, man, this is a very, um, you know, ambiguous character. Um, but hearing that the I was leaning towards female. Hearing that the uh, the the actors are all female, though, that does kind of make more sense. Yeah. My, my first thought on this is, that are are these beings that are connected to the Maiar somehow? Well, yes. Let me. Let, I, I want to talk about one more thing that happens with them here, real quick, and then we can get into like the speculation of who they are. Sure. The last sh- one of the last shots that we see here is the the one that has moved down into the crater, has her hand extended, and it felt like to me that she was like trying to feel like what happened here. And she looks back up at the other two and looks very kind of just, just angry uh, about <laughs> what had. And if you, I'll oh, go ahead. I was going to say she's examining a footprint in the dirt. Uh, it, it is a Harfoot sized footprint. Is that what it is? I thought, okay. Yes. Yeah. When you see those black fingers touching the dirt, mm-hmm. if you look really closely, it's a, it's a tiny little footprint in the ground that she's seeing. And the fingers being black like that, I thought was really interesting. Is that because it was digging around in ash or is there I something think so. else going on? I think so. I didn't think that it was part of like, what like maybe like dark magic corrupting them or something like that but that i guess that also could be you know a theory um they don't have ears of elves but they have ears ears of men so i i was wondering you know if they were elves that is, it doesn't seem like that is the case here um and their eyes are completely white and they have like these black pupils and so um a lot of people uh, in, in the trailer, they did show the Eminem looking one. And a lot of people were speculating that this is Sauron. Yeah, because if it is Anatar, you know, the bringer of gifts that comes in a fair form. But I don't know how I think if you pulled 10 out of 10 people, they would say that's a sinister looking person. <laughs> you know, that's, that's not a that's not a trustworthy, beautiful person. That is. That person is looking through their eyebrows like like fucking private pile at the end of full metal jacket. I think if it's you spooky. pulled I think if you pulled ten people, they would not be expecting Sauron to be, you know, coming arriving in in, in his fair form. So I think like to casual oh, that's view- a fair point. To casual viewers, they're gonna see this character and be like, Oh, okay, that's our f- first look at Sauron. And you know, I think you're right, Joe. I think that it's a little too kind of like 
on the nose as far as like what casual viewers would think that, you know, I, I personally have been looking for that Sauron in the fair form. And this is, I think this is just kind of like a, a trying to, trying to throw a monkey wrench into everybody's like theories and things like that. I think there's, I do not think that this is Sauron. So. Yeah, I think this is way too obvious of a flag to hang on <laughs> because this person does, to me, just like look sinister. And there's something creepy going on with it. And I don't know. I, it was one of my favorite mysteries of the episode was they gave us such a slight little taste of this. And it just raised so many questions that that to me are very exciting questions. I was thinking that it could be the Maiar as well. Like, you know, some of the Maiar, um, tell me like, what made you believe that Joe, just like the, the magical properties that we think that we might've kind of seen happen here. (laughs) I mean, yeah, it was the, the fact that that person moved like that, which, I mean, it didn't actually show it on the screen that, you know, like him disappearing and reappearing down there, but the way they shot it, it, it made it, it led me to believe that they used some sort of magic to get down there. So that, that's one thing. The fact that, these people, I mean, everybody saw that comet go by. We saw it in the first episode go through all of our principal storylines. So it's believable that these people could have just seen it and been drawn there. But the fact that they're also carrying that plate that has the constellations sketched out on it, the the one armor is got some sort of writing on it that looks like it's Elvin. Um, I don't know. I just I think that there's definitely something mystical about it. Do you think that? that maybe these were the representatives waiting in middle earth that were supposed to find this stranger and educate him. But instead he's been found by the Harfoots and they're educating him. A hundred percent, Joe, let me get into, um, the, what I do know about, about this character, because, um, uh, I don't know if you guys saw it, but we, it hasn't been revealed who this character is, but we do know who the actor is. Have you guys seen this online? Yes. No, I have not. No, I haven't either. There was a shot of the 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 last stranger in the crater from the trailer, and a lot of people were, you know, speculating here that the the actor was Anson Boone, and this is not the case. Um, I, I found out from an interview with Time Magazine that executive producer Lindsay Weber has revealed this is actually actress Breedy uh, uh, Breedy Sisson, who appeared in Netflix's Cowboy Bebop. She said, quote, we are enjoying all the speculation online and can tell you that Brady Sison is an incredible actor. We also thought fans might like to know that her character is traveling from far to the east from the lands of Rune. Rune lies in the eastern part of Middle Earth, where Sauron spent some time consolidating power among the Easterlings who live there. Um, Rune was home to a people called the Easterlings in the Second Age. The second and third ages, Rune also happens to be Sauron's stomping grounds. The Dark Lord consolidates power in the east, and soldiers from Rune fight alongside orcs and other men in his armies against the men of the west. Um, some more facts about Rune, and this is, I got this from the Lord of the Rings fandom wiki page. The name Rune is Sindarin for east. Very little is known of the lands beyond the Great Sea of Rune that stood on its borders with the Western lands. Even Gandalf had never explored there, and although Aragorn visited once, his activities are not recounted. Something is known of its ancient geography from the Silmarillion, 
Far beyond the Sea of Rune was another inland sea, the Sea of Helkar, and beyond that a range of mountains known as the Orakarni Red Mountains. Somewhere in the lost east, too, lay Quivenen and Hildorian, where elves and men first awoke. All the children of Iluvatar could trace their ancestries back to the eastern regions of Middle-earth. The Easterlings were a human race who ultimately followed both Dark Lords and fought as their allies in a war in different parts of history. The Wainriders and Balkoth were factions of the Easterlings in the Third Age. So what we do know from the person involved in the production is that the character is traveling from far to the east from the lands of Rune. And so, yeah, it, it reminds me of like, you know, biblical story of like the three wise men going to find, you know, baby Jesus when he's born. And yeah, Joe, you brought up that these three were probably the ones who were trying to intercept the stranger and now the stranger is being uh being uh you know uh, taken in by by Nori and the and the rest of the Harfoots. So these characters probably are not good, probably not to, uh, up to any good and maybe that's why this character of the stranger is kind of having like this internal struggle with being good because maybe that's not this character's original purpose, or am I into, or am I speculating too much here? I I don't think so. I, I would like to throw in another option too, just kind of what I had written down as kind of like theorizing. We've talked a lot about you know cultists and followers and such, and in the lore there are the uh, there is a cult known as the cult of Melkor, which Melkor is Morgoth, and they did exist and hang low in Middle Earth until Sauron started to rise back up. Maybe like you said, Brian, they somehow pulled some kind of magic or summoning and they were trying to summon one of these wizards or Maiar, whatever we think the stranger is to use for their own nefarious means. Uh, you know, you kind of see how he arrives. He's like a baby. He could definitely be molded probably how you would want to mold him. If you were found him kind of imprinting on, but instead of these cultists, you got Nori and the Harfoots, and it's a really interesting thing. So I don't think you're, you're barking up the wrong tree there. Doesn't it remind you of Bilbo being the one that finds the ring? Right? I mean, Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Don't they even the, say, like, in the movie, like, you know, and it came across a creature that, you know, the, the least expected creature, you know, it fell into the hands of 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 Bilbo, you know, yes. a hobbit. Like the only person who would not be affected like a man would be or an elf or even a dwarf. And the ring never and probably didn't in a weird way, like, because I don't think Sauron knew about hobbits. So it's like they just never took that into consideration. Yeah. It's the whole yeah. reason why people say. Why didn't Sauron protect Mount Doom? Why didn't he make it a gigantic fortress like Barad-dûr? Wouldn't that make sense? It never occurred to him in a million billion years that ever anyone would ever actually try to destroy it. 
They even figured they would use it, but no one would ever actually try to destroy it. Who would destroy it? And that's really where in these grand tales, it's that little type of misthinking by the powerful, overbearing evil that humanizes and gives heroes a chance to actually, you know, win, which I think is really cool. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And and also, I think that it helped that, uh, you know, when Bilbo found it, he didn't do any sort of he didn't do anything evil to get it. He just happened to find it. Mm-hmm. Same as when Frodo got it. You know, it was albeit reluctantly, it was it was given to him. And so because at the end of it, you know, Frodo couldn't even let go of the ring. He claimed it for himself. And it was through, you know, that that was where Gollum came in and fucking kind of saved the day. But I like that parallel with this with the stranger that that maybe there were some evil people that were from like a cult of Melkor or something like that that were after him. And just this chance meeting instead, you know, these very, very good hearted people or, you know, specifically this very good hearted Harfoot finds him and then. Yeah, it's 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 cool because that you see that in Tolkien's writing a lot, with just these little chance things happening. Mm-hmm. That and and this totally fits that that uh, that template for me. It's like, <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of fun. There's so much prophecy in these stories, and it's always fun when something like this, like the Hobbits or the Harfoots, like go off the prophecy. Like they're they're so not well established in the world people don't talk about them their politics in the world don't really matter to the overall scheme of things so much that there's not you know stained glass windows about what they're going to accomplish in the future so it always kind (laughs) of takes everyone by surprise when uh they get so heavily involved and seeing a character that's going to be you know that arrives as an old man and now we're now we're kind of like dealing with nature versus nurture and we've got as the parent figure a a child harfoot you know she's going to be the one kind of raising this elderly wizard and i kind of <laughs> love it and i'm kind of here for it yeah yeah I, I i know we'll get into this more a little bit later down the storyline but i think there's a lot of stuff that happened in this episode that continues to point towards the stranger being a Maiar come to earth I'm still thinking this is – I'm 50-50 on him being Gandalf, Joe. I'm still there, man. <laughs> I am too. There's just so many – and I know that there's going to be a, a huge portion of the fan base that's going to be very butthurt over that. But I think it would just be perfect myself if 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 it does end up being him because there's so many things that just line up very, very nicely with it. And <laughs> especially do it who cares let's just have baby gandalf I, it's fine well, i've been th- doing this show it's not gonna take me we, we have every other important character ever apparently showing up so let's just do it i prefer to call him washboard abs gandalf <laughs> <laughs> i want to see gandalf on the next cover of men's health magazine you know what i mean he's the oh God. he's the cover for men's health i want him dirty and everything <laughs> but it Pretty goes pipe weed addict Gandalf. I mean, if Gandalf's he if he was think about this, if he did show up and it was and 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 and, and Nori was not able to when he first fell into the crater and you see the fire blazing and the rocks are just heated up like like fiery orange coals and she's not feeling anything. It does go back to that scene where. Galadriel is walking through that hall and they couldn't feel the heat from the fire because of the dark magic that had taken place there. 
maybe this character does come from some sort of dark magic. But I mean, again, like I said, nature versus nurture, and maybe this character can change. And we can already see the changes starting to happen if this is true, because he does add some level of protection to the Harfoots, and he is kind of having an internal struggle with who he is. He views himself as a peril at first, and then she's trying to convince him that, no, he's good. And maybe he's having like this internal struggle of, can I be good? Because maybe he knows kind of like internally what his purpose is here. So I don't know. It's interesting. Really, the nature versus nurture with him, it's a force that they'll be fighting over. I'd be curious to see maybe at some point in the series – Someone else gains control of the stranger for a little while and uses him for nefarious means. I think that could also be really interesting. And then maybe, you know, Nori goes and does a little Frodo adventure and goes, tries to free him and does the overwhelming quest. Because I am interested in where do they go after season one? Because something's going to happen with them soon. They're going to encounter someone. There's going to have to be some kind of big event coming. And I'm very curious to see where her adventure goes, because I, I'm starting to think maybe she may be separated from the pack. Well, what do we know? We know that, you know, the stranger has shown her the constellation. And we, we also know that the constellation is the map and probably, you know, showing us the future home of Mordor. And Joe, like you said, on the back of that plate, same map. Yep. It's all leading them all to the same place. This is where everything's going to be kind of like everything's all going to be coming together. Will it come together by the first se- end of the first season? I don't know, but it looks like all signs are pointing to that very, you know, that that X on the map, right? Yeah. Yeah, and and I feel like of all the storylines that are going right now, this is the most slow burning of all of them. And so I wouldn't be surprised if they still continue to just string this along a little bit. And then maybe by the end of this season, we just get a little bit more of a reveal on what's going on with this guy. But I wouldn't be surprised if by the end of the season, it still continues the same trend with that being the slowest of the storylines. Yeah. I was surprised At least in terms of progression. Yeah. I was surprised that we got all four storylines in this one episode, very dense episode. Same yeah, here. I, and I was surprised as well. Um, I really liked the way they packaged it too. Yeah, if if these end up being the Maiar, they're definitely doing some like time shifting and condensing and rearranging of the story, right? Because like the the Tolkien lore is that the the Maiar decide to send all the wizards after the One Ring is created, and and the power rise that Sauron gets from that is the moment that they send Gandalf and they send you know Sauron and all the other different wizards to Middle Earth. So, but I I wouldn't have a problem with just kind of cut changing that a little bit you know maybe some some of these meyer don't agree with the decision that was made to meddle in the affairs at all and maybe that's who these are i agree jake and to be honest like we we've avoided talking about that a lot but to be fair the people that are going to have the criticisms about the lore differences are either not watching already or they're just going to continue to hate watch anyway and complain so it's fine like it's whatever makes it the most entertaining show cohesively that fans, but I honestly, more importantly, general audiences can accept and digest. And I think they've done a really good job of both. I mean, look, listen to our conversations. We haven't even hit on all the storylines yet. There's already been so much just in this episode that you can talk about. 
I just think it adds the element of surprise for everyone. And, you know, I mean, if you're wanting an exact kind of like copy of what Tolkien wrote, you're not going to get it here. But I'm down for some, you know, I mean, this this world is expansive. There's so much lore. I'm down for, you know, playing in that world a little bit and changing things up. And um, I'm here for it, man. So whatever they want to do. Uh, as long as it's not too ridiculous, I'm here for it. I, 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 and I'm enjoying it so far. Another thing that I, oh yeah, you know what? I'll talk about that later. I'm actually going to talk about, I, I just thought of it. I want to talk about it later. I'll talk about it when we get to Galadriel. Cause that's what I was really wanting to talk about. But, uh, moving on, a- any final thoughts on the, uh, three mysterious strangers dressed in white here? Nope. No, I think it's going to be a slow burn. All right. The Harfoots are making their way into a very dark forest and we see some uh, Nori and Poppy come across some, you know, uh, wolf tracks on the ground. And um, we're finding out that these woods are, are, are a lot more bare than they used to be. There's no fruit or food. And uh, uh, Sadak's wife is blaming the stranger and, and says that they need to leave them behind, saying like if they they keep him around someone is going to die and um cut to you know we they alluded to the wolf tracks on the ground now you know some of the nori and poppy and they're all being chased by a warg and they kind of gather around a tree to kind of protect themselves and before it can you know it's leaping going to attack them before it gets to them the stranger just jumps in front of this thing and then throws it to the ground and next thing you know, they're surrounded by three of them. And the stranger uses some sort of, uh, like magic and does like this Hulk smash on the ground, which sends <laughs> the wargs flying backwards. Uh, they kind of just get scared and run away. Now, and then he looks down at his arm and it's all bruised up and injured. So it's not like he's, it's not like he's immune to, to pain here. He can still be injured and harmed. And, um, that took a lot out of him. And, um, I, I think that this right here was one of the, 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 some of the evidence in the case with him being a Meyer that's just freshly come to, to this world because he's got a tremendous amount of power that somehow he knows how to use, but he doesn't, he's completely unaware of the fact that it's going to injure his mortal body. Like this body is 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 a very new experience to him is the way that I'm reading this and that he has no idea how that strength is going to affect him. And so I'm really looking at him like he is kind of an infant. You know, this is a, a little kid that's that's just picked up something sharp and realized that if he pokes himself with it, it's going to hurt. And and he's still learning. He's learning about his powers. He's learning about this new body he's in. And I thought it was really interesting that after, you know, he does that big Hulk smash on the ground and scares those wolves away, he's looking at his hand. And I mean, I, my first thought was, Jesus, is that thing broken? Like, it looks so bad. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was all bruised up. It was messed up. So, I, yeah, it's like it's like he has all these powers, but he doesn't really know how to channel them in a way that won't. He kind of just reacts. It's, you know, it's like it's not like he's a seasoned wizard here, you know? Exactly. I, I also like in Tolkien's works and in what they're showing in this show already through five episodes, too, is that there are very powerful beasts 
in Middle Earth in that it doesn't have to always just be the orcs or soldiers or giants. Like there are a lot of dangerous beasts and he has a respect for nature and for the power of nature. So it has been really cool that some of the opponents and antagonists so far haven't just been the Sauron or orcs. It has been that like this whole world is treacherous and there's a lot of things that can get you. I like that too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, think about like even in, in the real world, you know, just, you know, a couple hundred years ago, you know, the pioneers making their way, traveling and all the dangers that they, you know, had to, that they encountered. Like, I, I think it's kind of brilliant to see this caravan and, and yeah, like these Harfoots are kind of exposed. They're, they're not warriors, right? So, I mean, no. It's a good thing they have a guy like the stranger with them, you know, someone that they, you know, Sadak's wife was basically saying, we got to get rid of him. And the next thing you know, he's the talk of the camp. Everyone is talking about what he did. And and Nori says that I've never seen them taken a shine so quickly to an outsider. And so he's become quite, quite the popular guy around camp. And uh, he's focusing on his injured arm here. And he starts to chant something and we see some he, him like cast some sort of like a, an iced cast spell. And um, Nori then is like, you know, she wants him to stop. It, it looks it looks disturbing. She's like, don't do that. What are you doing? <laughs> and she reaches out to touch his arm to have, have him stop and it starts to freeze her hand. It's like a really fucked up Dentine Ice commercial. And... <laughs> And eventually, like, he goes through the entire spell here, and then doesn't the – does the ice just kind of crack and send Nori flying? Yeah, it's like it explodes and sends her flying. Yeah, but his hand is completely healed now. and yep, so and, Nor- and Nori wasn't injured by it either. I was thinking now the stranger could be able to give himself the stranger comfortably if he wanted to. <laughs> oh, man. With his what newly- a wizard. I know. <laughs> With his newly healed hand. But, uh, man, I, 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 for as little as we got with Nori and the stranger this week, it was nice seeing, I like seeing those two. I like seeing the dynamic. I want to see more. I want to see more. I really want them to build up this relationship between Nori and the stranger more because, um, I think it's a very important relationship going forward, especially with what we've been talking about with the mysterious stranger showing up in this episode. I think the more time he spends with Nori, the more time he gets to know the people in the camp, which I think is going to be interesting now that everybody has like this newfound respect for him. I want to see how he kind of like how he integrates himself into the caravan and how people react to him now. I want to see how Sadak react because we haven't seen Sadak have really a lot of interaction with this guy at all I really think it'd be nice to see those two interact and uh do you think that the that that Nori and and her family are going to be at the end of the caravan now or do you think that they're kind of kind of they're gonna uh, I don't warm up to him a little bit more and and you know bring him back up closer to the front of the caravan I was Seems thinking like good... that too, but I don't know if Sadak's the kind of person or you know, Harfoot that would be very apologetic about anything. I, so. It's been his wife that has been the one that's been really influencing him. She was like, get rid of him. And he had it in his heart to keep him around, but it, throw him at the back. And, and, and so I think he's been a little bit more forgiving than her. 
And now that the stranger has gone out of his way and saved her life, I don't know, man. I think I think she might be uh, whispering in his ear that maybe we get this guy a little closer up to the front of the caravan for some protection. I think I think 100 percent. Yeah, yeah, hopefully that's true. I hope that's true. I think it would be really interesting too going into the next episodes if Nori is now more wary of the stranger and feels that he could be a danger, but everybody else is more obsessed with how he can protect him. Now that might be a really interesting angle that, you know, he has to kind of try and win Nori's trust back. You're right. She ran away. She was frightened, man. That's kind of like, she where was we, very scared. That's where we left that storyline this week. That's where, yeah, we, that's, that's where we left it. I mean, we didn't get any more of the Harfoots this week. No. And it, it, and it dropped off fairly early in the episode. I was like on the, you know, by the time I was finished with this first episode and then backed it up and did my rewatch like immediately, I was like, wow, that is it's just a, a it barely even goes into half of the episode mm-hmm. before you're done with the Harfoots, like maybe like a quarter or the third of the way into the episode and you're done with their storyline for at least as far as episode five goes. I, I kept thinking that like by the end of this thing, I, every time when they went back to Numenor, I was like I, I was thinking it was going to be. Another Harfoot, you know, like we're going to move that story ahead a little bit more. And we never went back. Yeah, same. In the latter half of the episode, I kept expecting to jump back there again, but nope. Yeah. I kind of liked it. It reminded me of kind of Lord of the Rings story structure of doing big Mm. chunks with a set group and then moving on and doing the big chunk of the next set group and a lot less ping ponging, which I kind of think would be kind of interesting to see them explore that structure a little bit more. Yeah, I'm not opposed, man. I I, I, I enjoyed uh, fitting in all four of these storylines. Let's jump into uh, um, Arendir, Bronwyn, and Theo this episode. And it actually starts with a shot of Adar in a forest. And Billy, did you notice what he's doing? He's staring directly at the sunlight, man. Not looking yeah. away, not flinching. I mean, does this throw a little bit of, <laughs> no pun intended, a little bit of shade on your Maglin theory? Yeah, it, it kind of did it a little bit, but it helped me. I felt a little better with another theory involving him later. So it kind of came out in the wash. All right, man. I can't wait to hear. Uh, he's being told by the same orc that attacked Theo in the tavern um, that the tunnel is complete. And he calls Adar, my lord. And... <laughs> Were you guys thinking that everyone at this point is thinking he's Sauron? He didn't call. He <laughs> oh, didn't. Yes. He didn't call him father. He didn't call him father. He said. He said, "My lord." Yeah, I feel like a lot of casuals think this is Sauron. In fact, I've seen that as the case from just being on Twitter and Facebook. That this guy is probably the number one suspect to most casuals, or at least up until this episode. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um. I liked that we got a better shot of his armor on this, and you could see that those those lines that we were talking about in the neck piece on the the second breakfast episode, you could see that they go all the way down his breastplate. Mm. Um, it did when you got a fuller picture of the full breastplate. It did look more like a river. Um, still, really curious what the meaning behind that is, and if we're, we'll ever get answers on it too. Yeah, yeah, I hope so. I really, I want the background on this guy. Uh, Adar says to this particular orc, he says, your arm, show it to me. And, um, remember we were recording the second breakfast and we were talking about how I, I, I brought up 
how I wondered how that cut from that sword would affect an orc if they'd been cut. And it's it doesn't affect this orc the way it would a human or a hobbit like we've seen. Because we, we, we kind of came to the conclusion that this is a Morgul blade, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, that's, yeah, that's what we're thinking. But it did leave kind of like a permanent mark or it did leave a little bit of itself in this particular orc because Adar asks, you know, he says, how does it feel? And he says, like, fire. And, uh, man, I'm just thinking about, like, I'm thinking of uh, – you know, fire in Lord of the Rings, and I'm thinking about, um, you know, just like Sauron's eye looks like it's fire. I keep thinking about, you know, the fire in the, you know, um, that uh, uh, you get the ring around fire and how it reveals its secrets. And and uh, I'm just it, – it's, it's Balrog's it's, another great example. Right, yeah. So, so were you thinking that the fire thing he was referring to the cut? When he was saying it feels like fire, I was feeling like yeah, like I was feeling like when when he says how does it feel, he says like fire. I I was thought that that's what he was referring to, like it's like this um, fire that he's just feeling after the cut. Were you getting like a different feeling? Yeah, I was looking at it as he was asking him how does the sun feel on your skin, and he was saying it's like fire, and then he says I wish that you could feel it the way I do, and he said but soon. It will be darkness, and I will never feel it again, and the part of me that remembers feeling the sun will die as well. Like, he says something along those lines. Soon it will be gone when he was looking at the sun. I read it the same way, too, Joe. He says, I wish you could feel the way I feel, because soon it will be gone, and with it, the part of me that giveth warmth as well. Exactly. He's talking about the sun and oh, feeling shit. the sun on your skin. Yeah. Once Southlands become Mordor, dark, he's not going to be experiencing much. any of that. Well, it makes sense now, but like he literally just said, like, you know, he's like, show me your fucking arm. And he's like, how does it feel? He says, like, fire. I had he, no. He the guy to, to, it was almost like a test of faith on somebody like, hey, pull your arm out here and let the sun burn it while I stand here and wax poetic about it for a little bit. <laughs> I was assuming that this was the orc that had been cut by the blade. So this is not that same orc. This is just, they're just having a conversation about the sun. Correct. <laughs> yeah. When you started it first, Brian, I literally started being like, oh my God, did I miss that? And then I thought about it. I'm like, I'm pretty sure he's talking about the sun. Then Joe said that. So it definitely just made me feel a little better, but that's an awesome, like, that was a cool theory though. Oh, Maybe it is this. I want to go back and yeah, I want to go back and compare the faces on those orcs now. (laughs) (laughs) I'm probably wrong and you guys are probably right because they did focus on, you know, the sun kind of like beating down on his face. He's not looking away. It's not like he was opposed to looking at the sun. It wasn't bothering him at all. This damn man. I'm glad that I've got you guys here (laughs) because I was totally going into like theory mode as like. He's talking about that that cut, you know, that he that he received from the the blade that, you know, Theo, I was thinking this was the same orc that was in the tavern. Wow. OK, uh, I, I thought I thought this scene showed something really interesting about Adar's character also, because in the last episode, we see him, you know, being so, you know, tender and gentle with that orc that's dying. And, and it even rolls a tear when he ends its life. But here 
he's making one just casually subject himself to pain well, while he just kind of tells a story about his youth. And it's like, that's a real psychopath thing to do. So it's, mm. I, I, I think that the impressions that we got of him as being caring of the orcs, it's like, it's, I don't think it's a caring that any of us as, you know, well-adjusted human beings can relate to that this, this character is pretty fucking evil. I mean, and we come to see that definitely later on in this episode, but this scene right here, it, it, it just it, how calm he was and talking about it while at the same time, I mean, this guy's like, you can literally see his skin burning the mm-hmm. entire time. I just thought it was a chilling scene. Oh man. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad that you guys picked that up. Cause I was totally going into like deep theory mode here. Theory so. crafting. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Bronwyn tells the men, uh, now we're back to, uh, the watchtower and uh, it's Bronwyn and Aaron Deer. And Bronwyn tells the men of the Southlands the, the message that Adar gave Aaron Deer that in order to receive mercy, they must surrender and give fealty to the commander of the orcs. Uh, she asks the men who will fight with her and stand up against the orcs. And uh, everybody seems down for it. And then one guy, then we get old man Waldrig. He, he's, he tells the men to join him. And... Uh, a lot of the men begin to leave and make their way to Adar and the orcs. So I, I think they, they they lost about half of their men here. And then Wal- oh, Waldrig... Without a doubt. Waldrig is asking Theo to leave with them, but Theo does stay. Did you guys think that Theo was going to leave? I did think he was going to leave. I I don't know. I just thought he maybe had been corrupted by the, you know, the object that he found and he was going to take off. I, I was surprised when he didn't. Yeah, I was definitely worried about it. And and I love that that Bronwyn had a really good speech going and then Waldrick stands up and basically says, hey, remember, we're all racist and we don't like this guy. So come with me if you want to live. <laughs> yeah, I really liked this in contrast to um, Galadriel, you know, last episode, getting people roused behind her. I, I thought this was an interesting contrast where it didn't quite work as well. It's it's kind of like I, we've talked about this earlier, and I think it was probably like episode two or three when we were talking about. But there is a lot of underlying hate towards the elves, and a lot of underlying trauma that they feel. They feel way more traumatized. This these generations of people there at the tower feel way more traumatized by elves than Sauron or Orgoth or the, the sins of the past. So I mean, while it's frustrating, you could kind of see. Maybe why some would think this is the safer option for us. Well, I mean, Theo kind of talks about it in this episode a little bit later when he's talking to Arendir before he kind of um, Deer gains Theo's trust. Theo says, like, you know, you guys he basically I'm paraphrasing, but he's like, you guys have been policing us for years, like watching everything that we do, worried that we're going to go back to our, you know, evil Morgoth worshiping ways down to the down to making sure that our knives aren't sharpened too much. And, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those things where there is this resentment and I feel like there is this, there is within them, there's, there, it's, it's that, um, fight or flight, you know, it's like they could stay there and possibly die or they could join up with this other army that, 
probably is going to come out on top. They'll be able to live. And they won't have the elves like looking, you know, breathing down their necks about every little thing that they do anymore. So I think it's like a, a little bit of fear. Yeah. That's they find out the old, the grass isn't always greener on the other side. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they find that out right away. Pretty quick. <laughs> so the men, yeah, the men from the Southlands that left the Watchtower, they do arrive and uh, to meet Adar and then pledge their allegiance to him. Uh, Waldrig is the first one to kind of step up and pledge his loyalty to Sauron, believing that Adar is Sauron. He says, you are Sauron, are you not? And then Adar, you know, kind of like Adar kind of like reminded me, <laughs> reminded me of like Darth Maul here, kind of like walking around and circling him, just waiting to make his move. And then he just Adar just choke slams him like he's the Undertaker. And uh, he he basically at this point kind of wants him to to prove his allegiance. He says something about um don't they have to like combine blood or something like that? He and, and he wants him to take the blade that he's given and I guess I'm guessing cut the throat of Rowan, Theo's friend, correct? Yes. Absolutely. That's what he wanted him to do. It's what he did. We yeah, didn't... if he's gonna be play, pledging his loyalty to Adar, he can't do it with words, he needs to do it with blood. Mm-hmm. Very intense. I, I, and this is kind of the next part in that kind of that scene where he asked if he was Sauron kind of pushed a little bit of my theory that I've been kind of pushing the last few weeks that I don't think this guy is a big fan of Sauron. I don't think they're buddy buddies. I don't think he serves him. I think agreed he's in competing interests. That's the same way I read this scene is that when he as soon as he the, the S word dropped, he turned around like, bitch, what? Do you think it comes down to. If we are to believe that Sauron is a character that has been introduced into the show or even not introduced into the show yet, that it is a Sauron that kind of like ran with his tail tucked in between his legs and is this repentant Sauron and has kind of like abandoned them. And that's where this character's anger came from. Or do you think that this character has always had a resentment towards Sauron and is like, well, you know what? I'm going Frank Sinatra. I'm doing things my way. Plan still goes on. We're doing what Morgoth wanted. We're going to do it my way. I think it's a little bit of A and B, but mostly A. Like, I think the seed of resentment was probably always there a little bit. You always kind of see it in these kind of storylines. But I really think whatever happened is what sparked him to do it. I don't think he would have, like, betrayed Sauron if everything would have gone hunky-dory in the first plan. Yeah, that's that's kind of the same way I'm leaning with it is that maybe even he was like uh, another like general or officer or something like that in Morgoth's army. I yeah, I think we're going to kind of come to find what we do know about Sauron is that he's nothing but cunning. And I think basically what we're seeing here is at our following Morgoth's plan to a T. And I think Sauron, we might come to realize realizes that's not the way that, to win and the way to win is to go about the path that he's going to go down and helping to influence these rings and items to be created and take advantage of weak men and you know hungry power hungry men but i'm kind of thinking that 
Sauron to him may kind of seem like a traitor or like you got were saying, Brian, like a deserter, but mm. he doesn't care about anyone else but himself. And I think he's got his own plans that were not Morgoth's plans. Yeah, this scene gave me really strong. This is going to be a season one bad guy only vibes too. Like I've thought that ever since seeing this episode. And I, honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if this is the character who reveals to the watching audience who Sauron is before Sauron takes this guy out. Oh, I like that. Love that. Or like he's the one that kind of gives up the identity type of thing. Exactly. And maybe to the audience only. And then Sauron takes this guy out. Because I kind of have a feeling that the audience is going to find out who Sauron is before, say, Galadriel. That would make it a much more interesting narrative. Yeah, I would like that. Yeah. I mean, especially with the mystery that they're already setting up in this. We get uh, Aaron here teaching Theo how to uh, use a bow and arrow. Uh, we've got to remember that, you know, a lot of these guys have not been trained uh, as far as like fighting. They're not. Uh, I wouldn't say that the, that's been kind of handed down from generation to generation. I mean, um, fighting. Would you agree? I, I don't see many of these guys as warriors. I just see them as like maybe just maybe hunter gatherers, but I don't see them as like warriors. Yeah, agreed. And so Aaron Deer is able to kind of like get Theo's trust here uh, through talking with him and uh, Theo. I was shocked. Theo shows Aaron Deer the sword. Yeah, I was so proud of him in this moment. This was my favorite scene of the episode. I, I just It was a turn I didn't see coming, and it really made Theo a much more likable character to me. I don't know if that's just going to break my heart later on down the line, but definitely for the now, I, I like Theo a ton more and respect him a lot more after him making this choice. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you on that, Jake. He was he was kind of borderline, like annoying character for me, and mm-hmm. and he really took a turn in this episode. And I didn't see that coming either. I thought he was still going to keep it secret, and and I think it was that heart to heart with Arondir that that finally got through to him. Yeah, you know when, when Theo's saying that you know you've just been here watching us and and listening, counting our knives and listening to our whispers, and Arondir saying, "Well, I got to know the people, you know the the." The, the those hands they were and those those mouths i got to know these people and in theo saying half of us left and he's like well half of you stayed and mm-hmm. i think that finally got through to him that it's like i'm not just running off and leaving you here to your death i'm here to help you yeah yeah and, and i love that then theo finally accepted that and and then showed it to him and then when like the next scene then also when bronwyn's holding I'm like holy shit everybody's seeing this thing this is really blown open well, see, Theo's dad ran. <laughs> Theo's dad ran away. Theo's dad ran away. His dad left, and so Arondir is staying. And I think that went a long way with Theo and him, kind of like his wall being broken down and trusting Arondir. He gets this Danny Tanner full house talk from Arondir, and now he's <laughs> like, he's like, man, you know, this guy's staying. My dad left. This guy's staying. You know, so. Um, that, that's a great point, especially with his relationship with Bronwyn. It would just be another figure like that that was eventually just going to abandon them. That, that's a great point. Yeah, it's like John Connor in the Terminator and Terminator 2. 
you know? <laughs> For sure. <laughs> I agree with like what you guys are saying. A lot of shows would take those type of storylines and stretch them out throughout a full season. Oh, I'm going to hide the sword, hide the sword. And I think this show is shown in this episode alone, even with when we get to the door and the Elrond stuff about progressing that storyline and the secrets and things like that. They just come out and they're addressing them and we are moving on. And I, I do like that they are not going to this kind of TV trope of these long standing secrets amongst characters for an entire season. Well, our characters need to know that they've got this weapon that the enemy is after. And I think that uh, it's going to make. Yeah, it just makes this battle, this impending battle, that much more interesting. They have that piece, and and we they, we talk about the uh, they talk about what it is in the episode. Aaron Deere says he's seen it before, and then he reveals a carving. Uh, uh, it's like a, a stone wall carving of that sword being depicted killing a man. I kept looking at like, is that are those elf ears on that carving? No, it looked like it was killing a man, and. What sword is this? He says, is, is it, is it Morgoth's sword or is this, what sword is this? Yeah, we, we still don't know, but, but Arondir is worried that it's a, it's a key to something. Yeah. And he was saying that, you know, the, 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 the type of weapons that Morgoth had in that last, when the war of wrath were so bad that it, it sunk half the continent. So do we really want to risk the enemy getting this? And, Dude, that that carving, I thought that was creepy as hell. I mean, that this was a person getting killed on an altar. Yeah. And if you looked underneath that, you could see other people like heads and stuff around there. So it was definitely like on a raised altar. And was that like a a, a robed hooded figure that was like depicted was. above the blade? I, I stared at that for the longest time and for the life of me. I could not figure out what that was. It was a very kind of primitive robe with a very Morgoth blade looking blade in that statue. And I just think that they are just shouting in our faces that they're talking about when they talk about the key. I think they talk about what we were talked about in our premiere episode where they're doing these experimentations, the seen and unseen land, the unseen land being where they go when they put those rings on. And I think trying to pull power from there and all that type of thing is in a sense, a key. And that's those blades when you get struck by them, when you get taken, you end up one of them. And it's I, I'm, I think they're really getting there. And I do think one of our characters is going to end up with that blade in their hand sooner than later in the season, maybe during the battle, which I think could be a big call to what they may end up being. Guys, I, I see that as well. I stared at it so long. It looked like a sailboat after a while. So. <laughs> I'll tell you what I couldn't stop staring at ever since you guys did that. That great second breakfast episode. I couldn't take my eyes off Theo's ears. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Show me the ears. <laughs> I lo- no, I love what you're saying, um, Billy, about the, you know, the like the, the, the scene and the unseen worlds. And yeah, that's interesting. Um. Aaron Deere tells Bronwyn that the sword is a key, and he says it was conjured by some forgotten craft by the enemy to enslave their ans- uh, enslave her ancestors. She asks a key to what, and he, he doesn't know, but he does talk about Adar wanting to become something of a god and making a home for the orcs. So it sounds like the enemy needs this in order to possibly you know, achieve some sort of godhood or create Mordor. So 
I mean, could I kept this is a wild theory, but I'm going to throw it out there anyway. Could the sword be a piece that is holding on to something that will go into the one ring? Oh, I didn't even consider that. Yeah, I mean, there's got to be something that Sauron does to to make it what it is. So, yeah, I could see that. Like, is it holding something in it, within it, that is going to end up being a part of the One Ring? Is it... It's Yeah, maybe this will cease to exist and become what they use to make the One Ring. Yeah, just like, you know, uh, you know Joe had brought up that Mithril become you know they turn that uh you know, that the piece of mithril into one of the one of the rings maybe this will be i don't know it, it it it's yeah i don't know i think that, I that would be way cooler than just sauron using magic to make the one ring what it is like that seems a little bit underwhelming that that's how the one ring got its power just with a with a spell like i do like that theory we don't know a lot about the ring. The actor that plays Theo, Tyro uh, Muhafidin, talked about the sword in an interview with Inter- Inverse. And, and this is what he said. He said, Theo finds this thing, which he wasn't supposed to find, or maybe he was supposed to find. Um, and it goes on to say, like the other actors in the Rings of Power, he can't reveal too much about what's in store. All he can offer is that the sword will play a key role in the story of the series, quote, it's got some cool things about it, and it does maybe drive the storyline a bit. I think when you find something that is obviously so special, you're going to, you know, feel an attachment to it. And he definitely does. Mm, th- you reading this makes me think your theory isn't so crazy after all. Like, it, it's the same kind of attachment that people get to the brain. Yeah, they can't put it down. Mm. And and him saying that it's a central part of the series and not just the season. I mean, how central can just a sword be? Like, I don't know. I th- I thought these quotes led a lot of credence to to your what you called a, a wacky theory. I I don't think it's that wacky. I don't think it's outrageously wacky. I do believe if this sword ends up being, say, the sword of the Witch King, I think that's something that's important enough to last throughout the series i always kind of took that the real power from the ring and again i wouldn't be anti it being having something to do with it i think it could be a really cool through line i always kind of took the power of the ring and you know even why it was so powerful was that sauron poured a lot of himself into the ring so that simple gold ring while looking innocent and not overbearing it's just the amount of power that of himself and himself being a godlike being that's a, it's like a it's like a silmaril almost mm-hmm. you know in a sense and that's where i kind of in my history at least me reading the books and that's where i was kind of took where the power came from and less of the being like because of an artifact being in it. I, I guess my theory though is that now that we're dealing with like a, a repentant sauron that maybe that like what you're saying, like that part of him, he first put it in this, in the hilt of this sword. That could be cool. I wouldn't be anti that. 
when I was a teenager, I always thought um, Sauron used the greed that was created by the creation of all the other rings to kind of pour into the one ring. I, I just kind of made that up in my head as headcanon, but that because they really put such an emphasis of like just how greedy everyone was to get their hands on these rings and be a claimer of one. Yeah, and how they were all deceived, and you know the the the, the other ring was basically its master, right? Exactly, exactly. I, I, I always I, thought that, that that greed itself had something to do with the magic that was able to be forged. I know. I, I love that Tolkien's world is up for interpretation, just like this show is, right? I mean, with everything that they're doing. So I like that. I like that a lot, Jake. Yeah, this, this was this is really cool stuff. I, I was surprised at how much I loved the Theo storyline this episode because it's kind of a little bit been the worst storyline to me up until this episode. It's been great. <laughs> this episode was fantastic. Aaron Deers, uh Bronwyn is actually ready to give up at this point. Like she sees that sword and she knows half of the men have now left. Bronwyn, who like rallied the troops moments ago, is now ready to give up. And she's just like, yeah, you you know how we are. This is what we do. You know, we give up. We we always turn to our evil ways. And Aaron Deere says, there must be another way. And he says, who's to say what horrors will be released once they obtain it? And uh, you got to feel <laughs> that they're definitely getting their hands back on this sword somehow. Oh, for sure. Yeah. For sure the bad guys are going to end up with this thing. <laughs> One of my favorite scenes in this episode was when we watched the orcs kind of like marching on their way to the watchtower and just kind of like hearing what they're chanting. And oh, man, it was all. Oh, it's about to get real. You're yeah, like, oh, man. It's about to get real. It, just, it, oh, re- when, it reminded yeah, when me you of see the, all those campfires on the ground, dude. That is a lot of troops. Well, it reminded me of like all the all the Urukai marching on their way, uh, you know, in uh, the two towers. To go do battle, and I was just like, "Oh yeah. shit!" It's such a it's such an unfair battle too. It makes me so scared because, like, I mean, it was almost exactly a fifty fifty split between who decided to go with Adar and who decided to stay. And then you got the Adar and the Orc army attached to that fifty percent. It's oh man, I'm very scared for our heroes. Yeah, and is Adar going to send all those humans like on the front lines? That's what I would do. Prove your loyalty by attacking first. That would be sinister. (laughs) Oh, God. He's he's just going to light the humans on fire and fling them at them. (laughs) Things are going to go south for the men of the Southlands in the next episode. (laughs) Let's jump into, yeah, let's jump into the Galadriel. And yeah, so that story ends there with the, we see marching Oryx. And so, yeah. And we don't know if Aaron Deere says it could be hours. It could be days. Um, so let's jump into the Galadriel and Halbrand storyline in this episode. And it actually starts with, um, Isildur and he's, uh, talking with his father, Elendil, Elendil, and he's asking if he can join on one of the boats, one of the five boats. We find out it's five boats, Joe, and not nine. (laughs) That just means that we're getting the nine later on. Yes. Yes. Uh, his father says, like, hey, you know, I thought you wanted to go out west. And Isildur says he wants to do something worthy for the men of Numenor. And um, he asks, uh, his father asks him, and he's like, so are you a member of the Sea Guard? And he's just like throwing that in his face. And Elendil says, like, 
you had your chance. You made your choice. Elendil's mind is made up, and Isildur will not be joining the expedition. Do we think that he would have let him go had he even still been a part of the Sea Guard, or, or is this just an excuse to protect his son from the battle? I think it's the excuse. Yeah, me too. I wasn't sure. I, I wasn't because it, it felt like he really wanted his son to be serving and doing stuff like that. But it, but his, but a sealder is just always, he's his head's always in the clouds. He's he's never actually sticking to something. It sounds like many times, uh, um, uh, Alendil has heard this from his son that you know, oh, put me to the top of the list so that so that I can do this. So, uh, almost like a Lendil's looking at him like, oh, this is your flavor of the week. Let me throw this and out I, at you, Joe. Just kind of over it. Let me throw this out at you, Joe. I think that was the case like weeks ago. Like like I I'm 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 fine with you being a member of the Sea Guard because none of these men have experienced war, right? Oh, that's a really fair point. And, th- and this time they know for sure that they're heading off to battle. Exactly. And so, yeah, I could see that as a father's protective instinct. Yeah. Yeah. We jump to Farazan. Farazan is just walking, you know, through the town and he's being bombarded with Numenorians asking him, like, why, why are you siding with the queen and Galadriel and not trying to stop this expedition to Middle Earth? And Aarion, Elendil's daughter, is one of them. And she stops Kemen and tells him that he needs to talk to his father and stop this. She does not want this impending war. Kemen says that his father will not listen to him. So Arion says, you need to speak louder. You need to, you need to speak up. You need to let your voice be heard. And then we, uh, cut to Halbrand at the smithies and did you notice as he's making this sword did you notice that he now has the crest yes yes very nice touch he's told he has visitors and he is taken by guards to the throne room and meets with galadriel and queen muriel they show him a map and they ask you know where adar was headed after they don't say adar but they they're asked where you know after he was attacked after him and um, the men of the Southlands in the in the uh, town of Hordern were attacked. Like, where were they headed next? And he says south, he believes, to the Watchtower. Muriel thanks him and says that Galadriel talks of him being the king that can unite the Southlands. And there's like this look of like, just like, it's kind of confusion at first and then just like this look of betrayal and being totally upset at Galadriel for like revealing this to Muriel. And he's definitely apprehensive. And Galadriel says that once he's there, she's sure that he'll, he'll do his part. And Muriel says, I hope so. I've staked my name on it. And, um, Muriel is then called away to speak with her father. Galadriel and Halbrand talk, and and she's upset that he basically sold her out to get a crest so he could be a smithy, and he feels like she used him. And then she goes into how she's convinced them to send five ships to aid his people in the Southlands and crown him king. She says that maybe he used her. And he says, find a new head to crown. And he 
puts down the sigil, and he walks away. He ain't having it. Yeah, he is. He's done with the Southlands. He's he's in Numenor. He just made a very very nice sword. So clearly, he knows his craft, and this is where he wants to stay. And she is actively trying to get him to leave. And as he kind of points out pretty quickly later on in the episode, she's going out and trying to chase her own ghosts and do her own mourning. And she's got her own mission that she's trying to go on. And she can say it's for him all she wants, but it is definitely for her. Um, Yeah. One thing that I wanted to bring up and I almost forgot is that I saw a meme, you know, we've been talking about how, you know, um, the representation that we love Galadriel in the movies and this representation, we can, we kind of get a little upset with like some of the things that she does and how she doesn't have tact and things like that when it concerns like interacting with humans and things like that. And there's this, uh, there's this meme online and they're talking about, um, it's, it's that Patrick starfish meme where someone's explaining something to Patrick and, and he agrees with everything that they say and uh, anyway, it, it says people like Jane, okay, they're talking about uh, your average anti-hero protagonist in TV and film. And the character goes on to say people like Jamie Lannister, Walter White, Tony Soprano, House MD, Sherlock Holmes, and Patrick agrees like, yeah. And he says they differ in many ways, but some of the primary traits they share are arrogance, a lack of people skills and a general dismissiveness towards those they feel are lesser. And Patrick says that makes sense to me. And then he says, so it's fine if a second age Galadriel has some of those traits as well. And Patrick says Galadriel is annoying and I hate her. (laughs) <laughs> so he he agrees with everything up until the point where they get to Galadriel. And I think that I think that like I understand that for the people that are saying that they hate the show, but I don't necessarily agree with that when it comes to how I've viewed Galadriel in this because she does say a lot of things that upset me and I'm like, "Oh, I can't believe she's reacting this way. She seems a little too driven and and um, and things like that. And and it's because of, of the Galadriel that I've seen in the Jackson movies. And we're also dealing with someone who I think like by her age would maybe handle herself a little bit differently. But um, I do this with a lot of I, I do this with a lot of shows where uh, especially like movies that have like a a child at the beginning who's acting a certain way and like very um um uh rebellious against their parents and will will not listen to their parents and then by the end of the by the end of the the movie you know them and their parents have gotten along after they've gone on this adventure and they've learned their lesson and i i feel like uh watching galadriel in this series like I wouldn't comp- I wouldn't try to even compare her to like there's been many times where I didn't I many times where I hated Walter White and what he was doing. <laughs> so <laughs> so I wouldn't agree with everything that's going on there and I I fully expect Galadriel to to we're going to see some changes out of her character. I'm not coming at her character from a dislike of the character. I'm coming at it from I guess how I know her 
from the Jackson films, like where she ends up, right? Yeah, and and, and that's an unfair comparison because that's that's third age Galadriel. This is second age Galadriel. She's going to have like well over a thousand years to get there. So of course, you know, she's going to change and grow as a person in that time. This is a younger version of her where she's consumed with, with whether she wants to admit it or not, she's consumed with a desire for revenge. Yeah. And she only knows fighting. I mean, let's look at the times in this show so far where we've seen her at her happiest riding a horse and swinging a sword, <laughs> you know? So she is not made for for the niceties of of political maneuvering yeah. at least not yet in her life she hasn't learned those skills yet nothing that she's done has made me hate her that is I, that's no, the no. nothing at all that's the point that i want to get across so i think that uh, there are people that are viewing this from a place of hate because they hate what they've done with the character i'm viewing it as like man i really want to see this character's journey and get to the galadriel that i knew and i want to see that growth you know through the series and i think that they i think it's smart that they are writing her this way so that we can, like, once we, we have to see some change in the character. We're following her. We have to see some change. How boring it, would it be to just follow, you know, s- just a seasoned and wise Galadriel this entire time who never makes the wrong decision, who never reacts, you know, rash and uh, rashly to anything. It it's just doesn't make it interesting. So yeah, everyone would call her a Mary Sue at yeah, that point. Right. Yeah, it would be ridiculous. She yeah. she needs to go through a character arc, so she can't yeah. start the way that we know her thousands of years later. Right. For sure. Yeah, and I think like this vow to her brother that is driving her, and I think you need you need her character. I don't think she's always going to be making the right decisions here. I think she's actually made some some bad decisions, but you know that's part of learning. I think so. Uh, but I, I'm still enjoying the character. But anyway, let's get back into the town. Um, Isildur is uh Oh, uh, excuse me. Elendil is looking for uh, his lieutenant on uh, this uh, upcoming expedition to Middle Earth. And so there's going to be a sword. This is fun. A sword challenge and they have to battle against Galadriel. And I kept thinking like, oh, are they just going to do this one at a time? And then everyone starts to battle her. And she is just kind of like uh, taking everybody on all these Numenorians. And um, basically the first one to be able to even touch her with their sword, cut her with their sword, is going to be named the lieutenant. And uh, after this uh, sword fight ensues for a while, it's finally, it's uh, Isildur's buddy Valendil who wins. The way that this was going, I totally thought Isildur was going to show up, get a sword in his hand, and be the one to like make a mark on her. And like it led me through this like I was even when 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 the sword went flying off and it landed at the edge of the crowd, I'm like, that's the sword he's going to pick up. And then it didn't go that way. And then (laughs) but I totally thought they were laying the I thought they were laying the beats for that to happen. When he started running, when he started running towards like the noise and stuff and people were yelling about the the elf, you know, and I was like, yeah, I I definitely thought he was going to. He was definitely going to pick up a sword and join in the battle as well. Uh huh. Yeah, that's that's totally what I thought. But I, I liked the way his arc ended up going a lot better in this story. That would have been too easy. 
with him getting it this way. Instead, they they made it a little bit more of a varied path, and I thought that that was really fun. But I I really enjoyed this scene. I I like seeing Galadriel with a sword in her hand. Like I I loved that that first part of the very first episode where we're seeing her up in the forward way th- with her crew and battling the troll and stuff. So I was really excited to see her in another battle scene. And it makes me really excited for the battles that we're going to have coming up with her. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> Valendil wins, but I think he's humbled a little bit when he sees Halbrand using uh, his foot to pop it up in his hands like he was a soccer player he's got mad <laughs> hacky sack skills <laughs> yeah yeah i was just like how <laughs> brand was like all right kid hold my beer you know and then just like bam pops it up in his hands i was just like okay holy shit we need to get how brand sword immediately i've got to see this <laughs> if i tried to do that i'd cut off half my toes oh no kidding if not more <laughs> by accident <laughs> Uh, jump to Kemen, uh, confronting his father, Farazan. Kemen is upset with his fa- father for going along with the queen and supporting this war. Kemen says, my father would rather die than take orders from an elf. And Farazan says, when all this is ended, elves will take orders from us. My cousin can go to war for Galadriel. I'll go to war for Numenor. Kemen says, how could this be for Numenor? Farazan says, have you learned nothing? Soon we will save the low man from Middle-earth, lift them up, give them the king they've long awaited, and they will be forever in our debt. Now contemplate, if you can, how that might benefit us. And he's looking at the big picture here. It's, uh, it's all about greed. He's talking about trading with them, them giving them tribute. It's all greed. And Kemen... Farazan walks away. It's like a mic drop moment. And then he's so condescending to him. Imagine if you can. (laughs) Kevin has like this look on his face of like unbelief, but also that like he's impressed by how his father just like schooled him. Like, you know, I didn't see this. He's really looking for his father's approval. It's definitely a through line that a lot of our characters have. Yeah, I think he feels a little bit of shame for even doubting him, too, after this speech, for even thinking that he's given up. A hundred percent. We jump then to Muriel and King Tarpalantir, and Tarpalantir is saying that the kingdom is in danger. Muriel says, uh, everything's okay, and the danger is past. And um, Joe, I think maybe what Tarpalantir is feeling here is maybe what you were talking about previously, like... Or maybe it was you, Billy, him being able to have like these visions. And even though they think they are doing something to prevent the fall of Numenor, he's still feeling that imminent danger that's that's about to happen. I mean, yeah, yeah, just because that that vision that they saw in the Palantir, it begins with the elf and ends with the wave. There's probably a bunch of stuff there in the middle that 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 Palantir vision left out. And and I think part of going to the Middle Earth, I mean, this is just setting up, you know, these dominoes. They're getting all stacked up, and pretty soon that first one's going to fall, and it's going to take everything down with it. He he just knows what is going to happen, even to her. And I think it's partially, you know, the foresight's partially just being a protective father. But yeah, in the lore, he 
didn't need the stones to have the foresights, but yeah, I, I think that's going to come in depending on how long they keep the character of Tar Palantir around. I'm interested now that she they're going to be gone, what's going to be different? She tells him that she's going to Middle Earth, and he says, Don't go to Middle Earth. All that awaits you there is darkness. And um, it's the night before they launch the expedition with their five ships. Isildur wants to speak with Valandir, uh, Valandil, who is now the lieutenant. And he's he's like, you know, can you get me on the expedition? And he's like, I'll let you, I'll give you one hit. He's saying Valandil can hit him. And he's, Valandil's like, I want to hit you three times. And he's like, no, two. And then pop to the face, pop to the gut. And he's basically telling Isildur uh, that, you know, I, you know, I don't you're not going to be a part of this expedition, right? I mean, yeah, he's saying I can't stake my name on you. I can't trust that you're actually going to stick this through. And I I hope someday that you find something. Yes. That you're willing to give your life for. But from from like I've known you our whole lives, dude, and you do not stick to things. I'm not putting my name on the line for you. Sorry. The sealed door then sneaks on one of the ship. he's, uh, ships. He's going to be a stowaway here. And uh, Kemen is also on this particular ship. And he's trying to sabotage these ships and, and, and burn them up, blow them up. Um, Isildur tries to stop him. It, it, was it alcohol or oil? That oil. He- it was oil. It was oil because all the lamps in that ship run on oil. Yeah. And so all those barrels are full of oil to probably just, you know, run all the lamps on the ship was my guess. Well, as as Isildur is like struggling with Kemen and, and trying to stop him from, from doing this, the lantern hits the oil and then that ship explodes. Another ship then explodes and um, Isildur swims Kemen back to the dock and they're looking at Isildur as a, like a hero. And, um, Isildur doesn't tell his father of Kemen's plan to sabotage the expedition. Basically just like he's a hero and he, you know, Kemen was out there, uh, in a fishing boat. Fishing boat. Yeah. In a fishing boat. And I, I saved him. So now two ships have blown up. They're down to three. How are they going to fit 500 men on three ships? I was thinking the same thing, too. I, I, I was thinking about the logistics of it, but it is just like a very interesting decision by Sealdor. For all intents and purposes, they, the two of them really wouldn't be on the same side. So it is going to be interesting to see kind of like the debt now maybe be repaid in some way. We get a uh, meeting with uh, Farazan, Galadriel, and Muriel. Farazan recommends that they delay the expedition. And Muriel says, you know, well, the council will decide at first light if we're going to go through with this. She doesn't take Galadriel's word that Halbrand is wanting to attend. She wants to hear it from himself. And so Muriel, uh, Galadriel goes to talk to Halbrand at the Smithies and give him like basically like one last plea before the next day. (laughs) 
And Halbrand is kind of sweeping up at the Smithies with the worst broom I have ever seen perform ever. <laughs> I have that in my notes too. I was like, what the fuck is this broom doing? It it is just spreading this dirt around on the floor and not picking any of it up. It's not it's it's a it's a broom and yet it's not sweeping anything. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Glad you're tracing out the lines in the opening credits. (laughs) (laughs) Somebody needs to take the theme music and then just have that sweeping on a loop. (laughs) (laughs) Galadriel says uh, she was wrong to use him and that she's sorry. She says that the next morning, Muriel will ask him what he intends to do. And his decision will weigh heavily and determine if the expedition will uh, even happen. He says, I-, I think I've helped you quite enough. Galadriel says, then help yourself. Stop fighting me and together let us fight them. And he says, not so long ago, not so long ago, men like me were fighting alongside them. Men like you, not you yourself. Halbrand says, you're wrong. He says you're wrong. And then he looks into the flames and it was reminiscent of the flames that revealed the secret of the ring to Gandalf in the Fellowship of the Ring. It's like he's holding on to his own secret here. Mm-hmm. That's how I read that. Maybe I'm reading too much into it, but that's how I read it. And he says... No, he's definitely holding a secret. He says, you don't know what I did before I ended up on the raft. You don't know how I survived, how we all survived. And when these people discover it, they will cast me out. So will you. Again, I think he still sounds like a repentant Sauron here. Yeah, this this dialogue in particular was where I was like, I'm still firmly footed that this is Sauron. Like this, this dialogue really did it for me. He's obviously verbally holding on to something that he's not telling Galadriel, and and yeah, I, I even more so think that he's sore on after this episode, especially with all the Adar developments. I, this is it. See, and this this exchange actually pushed me in the opposite direction, where this was where it made me think that well, shit, maybe he's not sore on because the way that they had this intercut when he said, "You don't know what I did. You don't know what what we all did." It in the edit, it switches over and shows Waldrig and all those other people from the Southlands walking into Adar's camp. And so it made me think that maybe Halbrand and the people he were with, maybe he had to do something horrible like what Waldrig did in in killing Rowan. I read it the same way. I thought they show him even kneeling and they kind of show the the fading in as he's saying it. And that kind of made me feel like this is someone who has sympathy who has maybe, you know, doesn't want to be like the cause of any more of this type of thing that he's done before. And maybe, like I said, that redemptive arc could lead him to end up being a tragic character, but maybe not Sauron. Again, it's so great that we done. Billy, you're cutting out there, bud. Yeah, I lost you, Billy. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, let me point this out. Uh, for someone that you know, is saying like, you know, look what we all did. And I, I don't, he didn't seem to really know any of the people that were on that original raft. And he was so quick to separate himself from them. Mm-hmm. It makes me think 
that was he even a part of that group? He seemed to know none of them in this small town. And it just, I don't know. I, I'm still leaning towards this guy being Sauron. And I, I, there's another thing that I'm going to touch upon here as well that also led me to believe it. Galadriel says sometimes uh, to find the light, we must first touch the darkness. And he says, what do you know of darkness? And he wants to know, like, who she's lost. You know, what, what, what darkness have you experienced in your life? And, and, um, she says that her brother was killed in a place of darkness and despair by servants of Sauron. And he says, so this is all about vengeance. And she says it isn't. So he demands to know why he should go then to the one place he swore never to return to. She says that she cannot stop. She tells him, how the company she led mutinied against her. Her closest friend conspired with the king to exile her. And she believes that they could no longer distinguish her from the evil that was fighting her. And he says, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for your brother, all of it. And she says, your sorrow cannot ease my pain. Why would he apologize? Yeah, that was yeah. then immediately I was flipped back over to the maybe he is Sauron because yeah. that felt like he was apologizing. Not not like, oh, I'm so sorry to hear that, my friend, when 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 somebody tells you bad news, but like, oh, I'm sorry my orcs did that to you. I'm sorry they did that to your brother. And I think with her saying that and him kind of like she's saying, like, this is something I have to do. I can't stop. I think she's having him realize that he can't fight his destiny. She talks about peace. Like, like she can't have any peace unless she confronts it. And I think she fucking is doing what Gil Galad and stoking that fire. And he's coming to the conclusion that he will never be able to have any peace either unless he confronts this as well. She's saying you're basically trying to forget everything that happened and bury yourself into being a smithy. And she's like, you're never going to find peace doing that. And you know it. Deep down, you're never going to find any peace. And I think she thinks that she's talking to the the guy who's supposed to be the king of the Southlands and unite them. And in all actuality, unbeknownst to her, like she's talking to Sauron here and she's telling Sauron that Sauron, you're not going to have peace unless you go back and you confront this. I, I'm firmly believing that. And maybe I'm wrong here. And it really did feel like when he said he was sorry, he was basically saying, I'm sorry. Like he was responsible for her brother's death. That's how I took it. That was the same way that line read to me was he was apologizing like he felt maybe he was responsible for it. How Brandis, yeah, I, go ahead. I, I say I agree. It's more than just like feeling sympathy. It, it really did feel like he felt connected to that death. Billy, I know you're not buying it, man. Talk to me. No, I, I, I I'm kind of listening because it's that conversation was so interesting because as Joe was saying, Throughout the conversation, you can lean one way or another, but I do agree with you, Bri, that the sense of him saying, I'm sorry, whether or not he, if it is Sauron, that he's genuinely sorry, it did feel like a very personal connection to that line. And 
I don't know. Like you said, that it's something that you kind of sticks in the back of your mind. And when you rewatch it multiple times, like we have, I got the same opinion every time. Like there's more to that statement than just, Oh, I'm sorry for your loss. Man, this guy, I mean, he has been confronted about this, but he will just not come out and say, yes, you know, like I am the heir. I am, I am, I am supposed to be, I, I just don't want to do this. I, I, I don't want to fulfill my destiny. It's like he is doing everything he can to hold on to this secret. And I think it's because he can't say anything because he's saying like, once you do know the truth, you will cast me out, man. If people knew he was Sauron, they would have him. They, they, they I mean, they would burn his body at the stake. Don't you think? I mean, how, how would Galadriel react to that? If she did know that he was Sauron, there's no forgiveness there, right? I mean, not great, Bob. Yeah, no. <laughs> Yeah, no, not at all. I think but that's then alternatively, what, I could also see it coming in like, like, oh, you killed all the children in the village to to save your own skin. Like, that's that's despicable. Get away from me. Um, I, I think the writing in this show is done very well in, in that they're doing a good job stringing this mystery along. And there's a part of me, too, like the, the third part of me is that is like, are we as a fan base just making all this up? And 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 they... They don't feel that way at all. This is just the way they wrote it. But I really do feel like this is purposely written to be a mystery. And it's purposely written to to cast this doubt on Halbrand is what kind of character is he? And it's very well done because it's given us a lot of good stuff to talk about every week. I mean, don't forget that this guy was obsessed with becoming a smithy. And, you know, that... that uh... And he's very talented, too. When you look at the stuff that these people in the Southlands have, would you think that one of them would be capable of making a sword like that? That's a great point. I mean, I think where there's a smithy smoke, there's a smithy fire. This could be. (laughs) 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 And you know what? At the end of the day, I could be very much wrong that this is not Sauron. And I will eat crow if I am wrong. But I'm still convinced that this dude is Sauron. I cannot shake it. <laughs> and I, you know what? I, I'm not going to – I won't feel bad if I'm wrong because I've had a lot of fun just kind of like trying to – and I don't think that like what with what I'm saying, I'm trying to force that he's Sauron. I'm just taking what no. they're saying and I'm finding ways that we're – like this does kind of fit, you know? So – you are not extrapolating, I think, at all. I think that either they are – you are picking up on the cues and you are kind of solving the mystery or they're leading us to want to believe that and they may pull the rug out from under yeah. us. But like you said, either right, either way, still was, is a ton of fun talking about this. I mean like you said, we're on week five and we can still have this debate because there is different things on both sides that are coming each week. So again – I think that should not be understated in the writing and the good job that they've done with, with the show to keep the intrigue up. Yeah. Halbrand is summoned by the queen the next morning and, uh, it's the expedition is happening. He's going, they are leaving for middle earth and, uh, Isildur is actually leaving for the Southlands as well. Aarion watches as her brother leaves. You can tell that she's worried about him. And um, Isildur thinks he's going to be in, he's in the cavalry, which he is. But he we find out from Ellen Dill that he's the stable sweep, and hopefully he's got a better broom than Halbrand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Halbrand's gonna be like, "You're in luck. I I brought you my broom." 
<laughs> yeah, their their broom guilds fucking sucks. They yeah, take all their yeah. badges away. <laughs> right. I love to I love to cut here how we went straight from you know Halibrand making his decision to having his decision being made. I thought that was a really smart cut. Um, I, I think it worked really well with the pacing. We didn't need to see another five minute scene where Halibrand said something that we knew he was going to say just based on, on his reaction to the end of that conversation. I, I thought this was a really smart jump cut here. Absolutely. I, lo- I loved it. And, and that's kind of what I was referring to earlier with the, you know, the, the hooded slim shady character being one moment at the top of the cliff and the next moment down next to the crater. It was, was that just editing kind of like this or was that magic? Oh, 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 it's magic. <laughs> you <Yeah>. know. <laughs> Better believe. <laughs> Dude, it's. I, I wasn't going to hit the high note. Oh, me. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's magic, dude. Let's jump into the Elrond and Durin storyline for this episode. Uh, we've got Durin, who last episode was given um, permission to go and go go to Linden and meet with the elves and try to find out exactly what's going on. What are they up to? What are those elves up to? And they're celebrating the union between elves and dwarves making the Tower Forge. It's Elrond, Calabrimbor, Gilgalad, and Durin, and some other elves eating at a table together. And Gilgalad is curious about what all the increased mining activity is. Uh, you know, like, man, the, the, the dwarves are usually so quiet, and, and now there's just, you guys have really been hitting the mines really hard, and what's going on there? And, and you, you know, just Gilgalad's kind of like, how stupid does he think Durin is? <laughs> he definitely, definitely underestimates him. I think he definitely under, underestimates Durin. I think he underestimates King Durin and the and the dwarves themselves. And and then it, I love how Durin gets into this talking about like, hey, you know, where did you get this stone table? Like the, you can only get this stone table, this certain stone at certain depths and. And, uh, you know, we use this stone to pay tribute to our dead and, and, um, Gilgalad, I mean, you know, for a guy that's kind, kind of trying to pull some information out of Durin and, and, and being kind of deceptive in the, in, in his tactics here, Durin sure kind of works this guy over and has him fall for this. <laughs> I loved it. Oh, he immediately shuts it down. Like, oh, I know how I can stop this conversation. I'm going to turn this towards something very uncomfortable to talk about and just force you to move on. Oh, man. Did he did he did he learn that? I believed it, too. The, I oh, did, too. Sure. Well, it shows like he's, he's he's pointing out the ignorance of the elves that they wouldn't care enough to worry about where their stone table came from. They wouldn't think anything of stone. It was just there. It's a slab. It's a rock, but yeah. to them, it's much more. And he's, he's making a bigger point there too. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, is talking with Elrond and he, he sees that Elrond has this allegiance to Durin and he wants to know what he's found out. And he asks him if he's familiar with the song of the roots of high of, uh, Hithigliar. Hithigliar? Yeah. Hithiglier. Elrond. Hithiglier. Hithiglier. Thank you. <laughs> I even wrote it out phonetically and fucked it up, Joe. <laughs> I literally. Saw. 
Leviosa. Leviosa. I literally wrote out thigh, like chicken thigh. I fucking wrote it on my screen, Joe, and I still butchered it. And, and we don't get captioning with this. I know. So I just like, I, I pulled out my phone and the recorder and like said, I was like, thigh glare, thigh glare. I said it like three times. <laughs> and then I'm like trying to Google different versions of it because I'm like, what the fuck is this? Yeah. And I, yeah. I, I don't know if you got it in your notes or not, but. I do. I have everything here. Okay, in my there, the subtitles thing is rough. Yeah. Guys, right? it, if you don't know, we're, <laughs> we're watching these through the screeners and so they do not provide closed captions so when you guys get your episodes on friday you're blessed to have closed captioning and we don't have that luxury so especially with these character and location names and elven and stuff like that yeah (laughs) we don't know how respectfully the orcs are grunting on our first views yes oh that was the best (laughs) that orcs orcs grunt respectively (laughs) <laughs> uh he yeah he asked him if he's familiar with the song of the roots of hithiglier joe you say it <laughs> if, if elrond calls it an, an obscure legend and he says it speaks of a battle high among the peaks of the misty mountains a battle over a tree that some claim contained the last of the lost cimmerils on one side, an elven warrior whose heart was pure as Manway, he poured all this light in it to protect it. On the other was a Balrog of Morgoth who channeled all his hate in the tree to destroy it. And then lightning ensnared the tree. And because of their conflict, the power of, of both was then sent through the rock, through the roots... And it's as pure as light and as strong as unyielding as evil. And this is why the metal is both light and stronger than steel. Um, the light makes it light. And then the evil makes it very strong and unyielding. And as I thought about this, it's like the ultimate story of like, what doesn't kill you only makes you stronger. When I was thinking about oh, totally. this. Totally, yeah. Um, Gilgalad is wanting confirmation that this metal... Any, uh, yeah. Any more thoughts on the story here? I thought I thought it was really cool. I did so much diving all over the internet and through different Tolkien um, sites and stuff like that to try and find it. If this is this story is anywhere else, it seems to be created just for uh-huh. the show, though. I could not find a single thing, Joe. Yeah. I- never heard of that either so i'm glad to hear that you guys yeah. research too but i've never in all my years of reading knew that that was the case i was like damn that's pretty important if i didn't know that gilgalad is wanting confirmation that this metal in the story exists um a metal that contains the lost light of the silmaril elrond says durin was right and Elrond won't admit anything and stands by his promise to Durin. So Elrond basically is realizing that Durin was right, that he was sent there under, you know, he he didn't realize exactly why he was sent there. He was basically sent there trying to, as an informant, unbeknownst to him. Elrond was a little bit naive. I I don't think he expected this until it was revealed. And he's definitely disappointed. Absolutely. Gilgalad says, what if keeping the promise to his people, 
meant ensuring the doom of your own. And um, Gilgalad takes him to the tree that is in decay. And this is the decay that I actually talked about on the last episode. Um, the reason for creating the rings in the first place. The elves of Eregion created the rings to preserve the lands. So the main power of the rings was to prevent and decelerate decay and change. And he says that the tree represents an outer manifestation of what's happening internally with the elves, that the light of the Eldar is fading. And Gilgalad asks one more time if they found this ore. Elrond says that he swore an oath. And then the last shot is Elrond looking to the sky. And I believe he's looking to his father, the star, Eärendil. And he's, you know, he's wanting guidance right now. And I think he's going to have to kind of like, um, you know, uh, do what Finrod told Galadriel and, um, in, in the first episode. And, and he's going to have to look within to find the answers. Um, and then we jump to Elrond and Calabrimbor talking. Calabrimbor apologizes to Elrond for not telling him sooner about the decay. And he says that the king forbid him. Calabrimbor believes that Mithril is their salvation, that if they can obtain enough of it to cover every elf, enough to saturate every elf in the light of Valar, it could save them. Is the story changing here? I understand that, like, that they're building the forge and it has to be created for the, you know, to create the rings of power. But are they alluding to the elves believing that Mithril will be the savior of the elves and stop the, and will, and will just stop like their, um, decay, like their, like the light from, um, going out in them and them being mortal. I'm, what is going on here? I'm not yeah, quite it, understanding. I agree. This. Is this a line of BS that he's feeding Elrond to get him on his team? Or is this legit that it will save him? Like, cause to me, it kind of feels like a bunch of made up humbo jumbo. Just- I'm wondering if he's been, if Gilgalad or the elves have been deceived. Do they really believe that? Do they, they, I think they genuinely believe this, but is it true? Is it true that the light will be gone all by spring? Is it true? I, it just, is it true that the Mithril will say, I don't think it will, will do anything for them, but to me, it just sounds like so, too cockamamie almost for the elves, but it makes me feel like maybe there's a chance that they're being led on with this plan. I don't know. Yeah. It, at this point in the story, I feel like we just don't really have enough info yet we just have to trust what Celebrimbor is saying but <clears throat> i got that same vibe that <clears throat> geez excuse me i got that same vibe that that he was feeding a line of shit because it was like mm-hmm. what is that what does that even mean saturate every cover every elf with 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 what are you talking about are you talking about like making like just, the silver jumpsuits of the future and putting the elves in those like w- what does this even mean well they're th- they're like basically they're thinking like the light of valar is going out in in linden so if they if they if 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 this if mithril contains the light of the silmarils it'll i mean this will be what they need to like withstand this that this will be what they need to like not die? I mean, I, I I didn't quite understand it. I kept thinking to myself, is this just a tactic that is being used so that the dwarves will continue to to dig and then release the Balrog? 
I don't know. Or is it too? Yeah. 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 It's, it's, it's like you said, Brian, I genuinely don't know if they really believe this or not. I think the whole mission is that they, their power is waning and they think that with this mithril, they can make powerful items. I think maybe even the rings aren't really the thing that are in mind right now. Maybe they have other things in mind right now that they think are going to be able to preserve or amplify their waning power, but it, it just, and when, and when it doesn't work and the decay continues to happen, the rings are their last, like, you know, that's, that's the, where Sauron that, slips in, right? Yeah. He says, like, this is what you need. This is the Hail Mary, right? Um, we then see the elves carrying the table. Uh, <laughs> and Durin admits that he made up the story. He says, Deese has been wanting a new table for years. I loved it. All-time classic line. Yeah, it made me laugh out loud. Yeah, it made me laugh hard because, I, like I said, I believed it too until this line. Elrond is burdened by what he's not telling Durin about what he's learned from Gil-Galad and Calabrimbor. And um, he's alluding to it. And Durin just wants to know what it is. And he gives the best line of the episode, in my opinion. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> give me the meat and give it to me raw. <laughs> <laughs> I just want that sound bite, man. To, I love it. Um, he, he, Elrond didn't know that he was sent there by Gil-Galad as an informant to find out about Mithril. And he says that if he and his people don't abandon these shores and go to Valinar by spring, they will perish. And so that's where the whole spring deadline comes into play. He says that their immortal souls will dwindle. So just like the tree in Nimloth sig signaling like the fall of Numenor, this tree here in Linden is signaling the end of the elves. And Durin, I love this too. Durin's like, so the fate of the entire elven race is in my hands. <laughs> and Durin is just eating this up and he's like, say it again. Like, and he's like, whose hands? Yours. Durin is like loving this. One, one more time even for good measure. <laughs> so Durin is the Hulk Hogan ears, hands to the ear. Yeah, I loved it. <laughs> Durin is, uh, he's going to go and try and convince his father to mine for Mithril and get every elf covered in, 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 in this new ore. And so, yeah. Uh, and then we see that Gil-Galad was watching this encounter the whole time. We see him in the distance and remember that Elrond could hear from far away in Khazad-dûm. He listened to everything. What do you think he thought of the table reveal? <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> He's like that little motherfucker. I like that table. <laughs> uh, so yeah, that is where that storyline ends, man. Fucking, I. What did you guys think about this episode? Oh, I loved this one. I, I think this one was my favorite so far. This one really felt like uh, a pot of boiling water just steaming over ready for the next episode. I this this was great. That's a great analogy, Jake. I I totally agree. This was this show just keeps just keeps turning up the stakes and everything for me. I've been really really loving every episode and this one's probably been my favorite so far as well. Definitely up there for me. My big takeaway too is just how they were able to keep the pace up. They are not making lazy 
decisions with the plot. Their big revelations are not being held on to. And we're just letting the actual big events be the story beats as opposed to melodrama. So, again, way up there. This is probably, I would say, probably like my second um, favorite episode. I, I still like two episodes ago. Still my favorite one. But I've liked every single episode. Yeah, I think two episodes ago is still my favorite as well. Episode three. But uh, this is this is up there as well. I mean, I mean, honestly, they're all great episodes. It's kind of like it's hard to kind of rank them, honestly. But uh, I am now Team Theo for the time being. So it'll be heartbreaking when he turns out to be the Witch King. Um, <laughs> That's where I'm at, too. The way Those she fucking goes. jerks. <laughs> the show made me care about Theo this week. <sighs> <laughs> Who'd have thought it was possible? <laughs> Any final thoughts, theories, or remarks about the episode? Oh, I forgot to mention earlier. Uh, Ithiglir is uh, Cinderin for um, Misty Mountains. Ah, yeah, yes, good, oh, yeah, cool, great, great point. Oh, also, uh, Jake, you had pointed out, I believe, in our chat that they did confirm that that was Narsil. Um, last episode up in yes yes they did confirm it well guys give our listeners context about what you're talking about uh in the tower uh with tower palantir uh there was a very familiar looking sword leaning up against the wall we had speculated in our episode four coverage could that possibly be narsil narsil being the uh sword that um, Isildur of Elendils that Isildur will use the shards of to cut the ring from Sauron during the final battle, which we'll probably see you know towards the end of this series. And um, the what I guess it was the showrunner or director confirmed that is that dr- is in fact that sword. Yeah, it was the director, and it was a scene where they're like looking at the the tapestry, right, with the uh, representing um, uh, Elrond and Elros. Exactly. Yeah. But uh, that is all we have for this episode. And, uh, yeah, I want to thank you guys. Uh, you can find me and Jake on our podcast when we're not doing this one on Pop Culture Leftovers. And uh, we, what are we, what are we reviewing this week? Uh, the new horror movie, Pearl. I'll be talking about that. And we'll be talking about all the Marvel news and DC news and things like that as well. So check out Pop Culture Leftovers. Joe, when you are not talking the rings of power where can people find you hey you can find me on my podcast Startcast. i have long form conversations with people got a new episode dropping this saturday uh you can also check out my book i become death it is a post-apocalyptic zombie adventure story oh yeah uh jake and i are also going to be talking about andor this week they dropped the first three episodes of andor jake i haven't watched them yet i have not watched a second of it yet yeah so uh, I'll be watching that probably tomorrow. Um, I think I'm going to watch an episode tonight and then two more tomorrow is my plan. Billy, where can people find you when you're not podcasting about the Harfoots and trying to find ways that maybe Halbrand isn't Sauron, which I love about you, Billy. While I'm trying to not disprove Halbrand, <laughs> I am of the Reality Guys YouTube channel. Uh, we go for wedding rings on that channel, so anything reality TV based, so anything from like The Bachelor, Amazing Race, Survivor, um, even things like Jersey Shore, all the Netflix shows like The Circle and Love is Blind, um, you can find us on YouTube. I keep thinking about the episode 
where we do find out that Halbrand is Sauron and Billy's going to be like, guys, I knew it all along. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I knew it. Check the tape. I was always on top of this. <laughs> oh, man. If I'm wrong, I'll eat crow. But I'm having a blast theorizing with you guys every week. But we will be back next week with a brand new episode. Cannot wait to talk about episode six, the untitled episode six. And we will see you then. See ya. Yeah, happy belated birthday to uh, Bilbo and Frodo. Hobbit Day. Yeah, today we are recording on Hobbit Day. Oh, nice. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that was yesterday. Was that yesterday? Well, that's why I said by the time the listeners hear this, it will be yesterday. (laughs) Yeah, because it is today. Yeah. Happy belated birthday to Bilbo and Frodo. We are recording on their birthday, but you will not hear this birthday greeting until the day after. Could you explain that one more time? Because it was a lot of fun. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, no. Erase forward. <laughs> There's a multiversal war. <laughs> All right, guys. We'll see you next week. Laters.